Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. One of the perennial church-state subjects is government funding of religion. And there's a long history of prohibitions in our country on government funding of religion. In recent years, it has become uh, politically correct in the conservative side to uh, to judge such prohibitions as part of a history of anti-Catholic bigotry. But we're going to hear a different side of that story today from a Baptist in Missouri, Brian Taylor's editor of Word and Way, a Baptist magazine, associate director of ChurchNet, a St. Baptist convention, and uh, certainly very well versed in the Baptist history and Baptist support for uh, the separation of church and state and the denial of such funds. Brian, thank you for reaching out to us and for joining us on Freedom's Ring today. Well, thanks for having me. So let's start with the Missouri experience. How far back does Missouri go in terms of prohibitions on government funding of religion? Yeah, actually, it goes all the way back to the beginning. And this is something that I began to learn last year when we had the Trinity Lutheran case going all the way up to the Supreme Court, which came out of a church in Columbia, Missouri. And so then as I started to learn a little bit more about Missouri, and, and at the time, and even still today, every few weeks, I see a reference to Missouri as having one of these so-called Blaine Amendments. And so James Blaine made his proposal first in December of 1875. U.S. Representative Speaker of the House James Blaine made the proposal at the federal level that ultimately failed. And then many other states did adopt proposals after him. But Missouri actually was before that. So just so our listeners are clear, everybody doesn't know what a Blaine Amendment is. These were amendments that many states adopted that were blanket prohibitions on government funding of religion, right? Yes. Uh, some of them focus on not providing aid to religious schools. Some are houses of worship. Some do houses of worship and religious schools. The blame that the federal level was particularly focused on the issue of religious schools was a big part of that particular debate. So he makes that proposal nationally in December of 1875. But the current prohibition on aiding houses of worship and religious schools in Missouri's constitution does come from 1875. But it was actually adopted earlier that year when our constitutional convention met in May and June of that year. So we actually predated Blaine's proposal by several months. But even that was not a new idea for Missouri. Five years earlier, there had been a constitutional amendment that barred support of religious schools. And if you go back to Missouri's very first constitution in 1820, there was a clause declaring that no one would be compelled to support a place of worship. And that's 55 years before Blaine brings this debate onto the national level. Well, you know, part of the thing I was thinking about doing the show this week and the idea that some of these prohibitions arose during a period when, yes, there were the start of the Catholic parochial school system because the public school system was so pervasively Protestant. But the origin, it seems to me, I'm not sure if you thought about this, Brian, but the, the origin of our First Amendment and our constitutional prohibitions on funding of religion are at a time when the colonies threw off the yoke of the establishment of the Anglican Church. It wasn't the Catholic Church that was really 
the, you know, at the heart of when we establish these principles of institutional separation. You know, England lost the war and, you know, the colonies wanted to distance themselves and, and not continue supporting the Church of England having nothing to do with bigotry against the Catholics, but having to do with winning their independence. That's, that's absolutely correct. Um, yeah, and, and as a Baptist, I'm proud of this. The Baptists in the colonial era were among those fighting, even all the way back then in the 1700s, for separating this this colony or state support of religious institutions. You see this in Virginia, you see this in Massachusetts and in other places where Baptist ministers are saying this isn't fair that our tax money is being used to support those churches and their ministers. We're paying our tithe for our church and our taxes for your church. So this is a, a historic principle that came into state constitutions uh, later. But yeah, you're right. It goes all the way back to our founding idea of that we would create a system that separated the church and the state. Well, and, you know, the stories that I have told for so many years coming of New England, out of Massachusetts, Isaac Backus being the famous Baptist leader there, uh, had to do with the Baptists refusing to pay even, you know, pennies in, in property taxes, losing their property in some cases, because they would not support the church that was somebody else's church with their tax dollars. So, you know, this principle had nothing whatsoever to do with anti-Catholic bigotry. Correct. And there have been some historians that have studied some of these states, because there were several other states besides Missouri, particularly in the Midwest, that put these types of no-aid clauses in their constitution well before the national debate. And it is true that at the national level, there were some aspects of anti-Catholic bigotry, but it was a very small part of the debate. But at some of the state levels, in Missouri and in Wisconsin, and we have a whole swath of Midwestern states, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Minnesota, all of these, and decades before the national debate on this topic, had put in state clauses. And as you look at them, and historians have looked at the Missouri case, and anti-Catholicism doesn't come up at all in the public debate about why we want to put this long principle officially into our state constitution. You know, we have a principle that I have relied on repeatedly in my legal practice for many years. When it comes to the interpretation of statutes, and I, I think it's relevant here, because the argument against these Blaine amendments is an argument that, well, if you look at the legislative history, they're motivated by bigotry. Okay, that's the basic argument. Well, the principle of statutory interpretation is you don't get to legislative intent if the statute is clear on its face. That becomes irrelevant. You just read the statute, and you can't somehow interpret it or invalidate it on the basis of intent. So the, the whole effort to discredit these statutes, I think, is, is wrong-headed. But I think, as you're pointing out, you know, we have this long history in our country of antipathy, really, to government funding of religion. And that's what's reflected in these statutes, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the clauses, even, even if it were driven by anti-Catholicism, could have been written in such a way that they would be problematic if they had targeted no funding to Catholic schools or Catholic churches. But instead, they were written in a way that they treat all religious groups equally and the same. And, and we even see that in the Trinity Lutheran case. It wasn't Trinity Catholic Church that brought the case. It was Trinity Lutheran Church that brought the case to the Supreme Court. And so if this is supposedly some anti-Catholic rule, then why was it stopping funding going to this Lutheran church and, and to other houses of worship? 
but I, I think this whole focus on on blame is is an attempt to direct our attention away from the focus of what this issue is. My PhD is in political communication, so I'm always thinking about, well, why are we calling something one thing and not another? And so by calling these Blaine amendments, what it is, it's a bit of a rhetorical sleight of hand to focus our attention onto a person as opposed to talking about the issue at hand. When we call these no-aid clauses, our focus is on the debate of whether or not taxpayer money should be going to aid houses of worship or religious schools. But by calling it Blaine Amendments, what critics of these amendments have done is focus our attention on this guy who may or may not have been anti-Catholic. And I actually think the historical record there suggests that he wasn't. But since none of us today really know who he was, we can kind of accept the argument that, well, that sounds like a bad man. I mean, his mother and his sisters were Catholic. And so I have trouble seeing him motivated by some attempt to destroy Catholics in the country. But really what this language has done is focus our attention away from the issue. And where we need to be having this debate is, do we think that state and federal governments should be directly supporting houses of worship, paying houses of worship of the majority faith is how it would go, right? Or do we think that we're better off with a separation there? So let's talk about that issue. You know, first, a California perspective, because I live and work in a deep blue state, as it were. And we have faced in legislation in California what religious conservatives have regarded as a literally an existential threat to Christian higher education because of our dependency on government funding for various kinds of grant and loan programs for our students. So one problem is, you know, with uh, we call it the golden rule problem. You know, he has got the gold makes the rules. And if uh, if you don't play by their rules, you're in trouble. Yep, that's right. And that is an issue that we have to deal with. And with the money comes oversight to make sure the money was spent appropriately. And so by, by funding houses of worship, then we're inviting government oversight into our houses of worship. And that could become us create some very significant problems down the road. Well, and that's kind of very basic to having the institutional separation. You know, churches don't file income taxes or anything like that. We have a certain degree of independence. Um, what are some of the other problems with government funding of religion that, you know, as far as why Baptists have historically championed this principle? Well, so when Baptists were complaining about this issue in Virginia and Massachusetts and the other colonies, you know, we were a very small minority sect. And I think that that experience is one that we need to make sure that we hold on to. And sometimes when we become the majority, it's tempting now to use that that size and that power to get what we think is ours. But the funding is primarily going to go to those dominant congregations. You can see this even in the aftermath of the Trinity Lutheran case. So the, the way to get the funding for the playground, which is what Trinity Lutheran Church was suing for, was to get direct aid so that they could resurface a playground at their church. Part of that proposal process is based on numbers. The competitive process to get the state grants is how many children are using your playground. So by opening this program up now to houses of worship, then those larger congregations, the majority faiths, are going to be more likely to get the funding. And if you're a small minority group, you're not going to meet the criteria that has been set for getting that funding. And so what we would see if we take away these clauses 
is at local state levels, whatever are the larger groups that are going to be the ones that are getting the money. Well, and with grant programs, there's always going to be criteria. There's going to be, you know, a dividing line between the sheep and the goats, as it were, who gets it and who doesn't. And to some extent, which religions are regarded as sufficiently acceptable to get funding and which ones aren't. So I think you're right. The the criteria can be massaged. I know that, for example, the debate when we had a voucher initiative last, we've had several here in California, but the debate among the liberals was, well, you know, we can't have these religious schools teaching creation on, you know, our tax dollars. Um, and there were other subjects that came up as well. But clearly, you know, if government funding flowed to these schools, then you would see great scrutiny of what is being taught, of curriculum requirements, all kinds of scrutiny and regulations, and a great erosion of the freedom that our religious institutions enjoy today. That's absolutely correct. And we should expect that from our government, that if we're spending money on programs, that there should be some basic expectations of, of what is taught or how the money is spent. We should expect that. We don't want governments just tossing money you know, around and, and never checking into making sure it's being spent appropriately. But then the risk then to a congregation or to a religious school is that you have to make sure that you still have the freedom to preach and to teach as you want. We're out of time. Our guest today, Brian Taylor, a Baptist leader in Missouri. We've been talking about the history of prohibitions on government funding of religion, Baptist perspective, and the Missouri experience. Brian, thank you for being with us on Freedom Spring today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And as we close, we want to remind our listeners here at Freedom Spring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We help those suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org, all one word, churchstate.org. And you can listen to Freedom's Ring on SoundCloud or iTunes. Freedom is not free, listeners. Be informed. Get involved. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Ronick. Until next week, let freedom ring.